Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everyone to the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. And today we have Mrs. Miller joining the show. As you know, this show is all about financial independence and inspiration to guide you to that financial freedom. And today, Mrs. Miller is going to talk about some topics that I think are very important for anyone in their financial journey. So first, we're going to talk about creating generational wealth. And I think that's super important, but I actually am really excited to share this concept with you because it's actually different than what you might expect. So I can't wait for you to hear that from Mrs. Miller. She actually blogs over at Miller's On Fire, and she also has an Instagram as well. What I love most about her story is that you can go to her about page and actually see her numbers completely. And it shows what she is planning to do over the next 11 years to reach financial independence. Again, super transparent. And I think it's really cool that she shares that up front with her audience. So go check that out. And some other things we're going to be discussing in the show are how she deals with wealth guilt. That's something that she's had to deal with in her personal life. And I'm sure many others as well go through the same. So we're going to go ahead and define what wealth guilt is and some of the ways that people can deal with that. And lastly, we're going to talk about planning to care for parents, grandparents, while you're also on the pursuit of financial independence and how you balance those two. So I think this episode is going to be just jam-packed with great information. And uh, Mrs. Miller was just a pleasure to talk to. I'm really happy that she joined the show. So without further ado, I do want to welcome her. Before that, real quick, I do want to just ask If you haven't subscribed, please do. Just click the subscribe button on the podcast platform that you're using. And go ahead and follow me at inspire to fire on Instagram as well as check out the blog. So if you enjoy this episode and if you've enjoyed this podcast in general, go ahead and leave a review and share it with a friend. I would really appreciate all that. So now, without further ado, Mrs. Miller, welcome to the show. Hi, hello. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm super excited to be here. No, I am excited. The pleasure is all mine. And your story is amazing. And I wanted to get you on the show so that we can basically talk about your story. You live in New York City, and you are basically on this financial independence path. But you have a lot of interesting perspectives in terms of caring for parents during the financial journey or planning for that. You also talk about something called wealth guilt that I hope we can get into. And then finally, hopefully ending it with talks about generational wealth. So 
let's start off with your your story, your money story, and how you got to, to be where you are today. Yeah. Um. So I guess I've always been a little bit of a money nerd. I didn't always understand um, all of the concepts, but for example, um, I used to watch Susie Orman's PBS retirement specials for fun. <laughs> um, I didn't always understand everything that she was talking about, but it was something that interested me for sure. And then, um, you know, just like most people, I feel like in the fire community, I had a bad day at work um, and actually had been culminating, like it had been happening for about six months or so. There was change in management and, you know, there's always like adjustments that have to be done, but it was something that was not improving. It was sort of getting worse. Um, And I had read a clickbait article a few months prior where I read a story of a couple of 40-year-olds who had retired to travel the world. I think uh, they had retired at 38 and 39. So after this long, terrible week that I had, it was on a Friday, I uh, looked for my emails because I had sent it to my then uh, fiance. And I said, hey, look at this. And that was kind of the end of it. So I looked at that. I looked for the email and I found the article. And that led me down to clicking and finding their blogs. And then I found this, you know, I was like, wow, there's more than one blog about talking about this. There's people who podcast about it. And I literally spent the entire weekend consuming as, as much as I could about this whole concept of retiring early, about being financially independent. Um, and that was the start, um, at the end of that weekend on a Sunday, I presented all of my empirical data to my husband (laughs) and I said, oh my gosh, I think we need to retire early. (laughs) I think we can totally do this. And that was the start. Cool. Yeah. And that story is, it's similar in a lot of people. I feel like a lot of people don't even realize the opportunity. And then when you come across some sort of podcast or book or article, you realize that there's another way to potentially live your life and plan your life, which is this financial independence. I mean, it took you having a horrible day and and yeah, a lot of people have been there. Thank you for sharing that. So your financial independence journey has already begun. How far along are you on this journey? Yeah. So I flipped the switch and um, I read this article um, in 2016. That was when I spent that weekend, like just really trying to, to absorb everything that I could about it. And we had some debt. So I still had some student loan debt and also my husband had a car note. So I said, okay, well, let's take care of this first. It was very little debt and it was low interest, but I knew that if we can stop making payments on those things, that then any extra money would be, could go towards investing. And so that was what we did. We only had, we had less than $10,000 left. So uh, it just so happened there was like a three paycheck month coming up and my husband was having a bonus. So it was like right at the perfect time. So within a couple of months, we ended up paying the debt off. And then I just looked at our budget. Um, I had always kept a budget. I still have the same spreadsheet from back in college. But when I looked at it, what I realized was that all of our bills were paid and things like that. But there was a lot of like miscellaneous spending, eating out. Um, For me, it was shopping for sure. And so I started to be more mindful about those things and being more intentional. 
And, you know, it wasn't a huge, you know, I dropped all of the uh, <laughs> miscellaneous or frivolous spending on my behalf right away. But what it did do was it was a motivation. So when I was able to open up my first uh, brokerage account, for example, and put in my first hundred dollars, it felt good. And then I put in another $200. And then we looked at our 401ks to see if we could, number one, reduce our tax liability, see if we could reduce our taxable income, and then also save for retirement or invest for retirement, really. So that was how the journey started. So we started in 2016. Our original FI date was uh, 2027, but the market has been phenomenal in the last few years. Even this year, it's pretty incredible. And so um, through that, and also increasing our investing, and we did increase our salaries a little bit, but also reducing our expenses. That was the hugest thing for us. Um, and we did it in such a way that we don't feel deprived. We feel like we're living our best life, but we're really optimizing the opportunities that we have, including being invested for a longer time. So now our FI date is like 2025, which seems crazy. It's pretty wild. Yeah, that's right around the corner, really. Yeah, the closer we get to it, the least likely I am to quote unquote retire. Like I ended up switching jobs and um, I was living in California at that time. My husband and I were living in California. We moved to New York. And so I really do enjoy my job now. It's doing the same type of work, just in a different office. So of course that changes things. Um, but I think one thing that having... Um, that reaching that FI number does, it just it creates a lot of options. And so I know that if things really got tough or really things got, um, where, where it just wasn't worth it anymore, I would have the option to do something different. And I think that that is the thing I love about this whole fire movement and saving for financial independence. Absolutely. It gives you so many options, like you said, and you have great backup plans in comparison if you didn't pursue financial independence. And I want to talk about the point in time where you realized that you may want to incorporate the caring for your parents in the long term. When did that come up and how have you dealt with that? I know from experience that there is a cultural expectation, especially in minority groups. I'm Hispanic. So how do you handle that part? Yeah, I mean, so one interesting thing for us, um, I'm, I'm a Latina. And uh, so one of the things that happened that is pretty common is sort of intergenerational living, for example. And so I hadn't really thought much about what would happen to my parents during retirement until I, until I started thinking about my own retirement situation. And, you know, as you get older, you start thinking about the care of your parents, right? Because thankfully, my parents are pretty healthy. They're relatively young still. But, you know, as I started planning for retirement, I also looked at their situation and sort of realized, like, they are not in the position that someone who could retire healthily <laughs> or financially stable um, should be. And so what I started doing was thinking about ways to help them and really understanding what their situation was. Now, of course, they're much closer to social security age than I am. So for example, I don't count on social security being there for me when I get older, but I think it's relatively safe to say that for my parents, it's probably gonna be there in some way. 
But even that sort of understanding what that amount looks like is really important for people. I think we really need to understand are you going to be getting a $1,000 check a month or are you going to be getting a $6,000 check a month? And I think people are shocked to realize that social security is not enough. It was never meant to provide a full life, unfortunately. That's just not what it was created for. And so when I began to think about what uh, how much would be provided for them, I realized that it wasn't going to be enough. So as I thought about how we could maximize the stock market for us, and because we're in a relatively good place, like there's no question in my mind that we will be able to retire before 65, right? There's mm-hmm. no doubt in my mind. What would that look like if we began to set aside money for our parents as well? And Again, this is something that some people might not really consider, but for me, it's something that I know that I need to think about. No, and I think it's very important. And so what you're planning is to set aside a little bit more and factor in just a little bit more from that 4% or that cash flow that you may have, um, you know, five, 10 years down the road to supplement. So with Social Security, with other assets that you may have available, they can kind of pay their bills and live a comfortable retirement. So I think that's a very good uh, plan, actually, to kind of strategize what do I need exactly in terms of investments to kind of provide a little bit more for them. Yeah, I mean, so that, that was sort of the original thinking. What ended up happening and what I think feels comfortable for us right now is that we, when we were living in California, we owned a home. And so we became sort of accidental landlords because uh, when I got the job in New York, they gave me very little time to move and there wasn't really an opportunity to sell the house right away. So we just said, let's put it on the market to rent it out. And so that has actually worked out really well for us. So um, that being said, I purchased a home before I met my husband. I was single back in 2010. So it was right when it was totally a buyer's market. Um, so I purchased a home at a really good deal. It was at the bottom of the market. And now that home has appreciated. And now that home cash flows as a rental. And so what we've done now is say that property and that home is what I sort of consider my parents' retirement. I don't necessarily tell them that. I don't necessarily (laughs) advertise that, but it makes me feel comfortable and it makes me feel, um, I I feel, I feel like I'm protecting them, um, knowing that I have something for them in case they need it. And, you know, something that we did when we moved to New York, we had our little shoebox of an apartment and my grandmother actually owned a co-op that she purchased decades ago. And as her health started failing, my husband and I decided to move in with her to help her. And um, she recently passed away. She passed away in um, over the summer, the, the summer of 2020. And so during that time, you know, now that we are here in this co-op that is paid for, there's no mortgage on the co-op, you know, it's also something that I think about because I'm like, if we decide to leave New York City and my mother needs a place to go, she can also come here. And so I feel like having those opportunities, having those, uh, creating those options, again, um, aside from investing. 
it's so important, like you said, and for those who are expecting or preparing to care for their parents in the future or want to, like you mentioned, increasing the investments or planning a little bit from there. Social security can help as well. And then planning for the living situation, maybe a little bit of a house hack kind of situation there, Um, you know, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that, especially if your mom or your parents are easy to get along with. That makes the process a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I don't know if I could live with my parents again. Uh, (laughs) It was uh, even challenging a bit with my grandmother, but, um, you know, again, it just creates some options. Again, it's, I feel like once you have those opportunities and once you have the options available to you, there's freedom in that. There's freedom in knowing that you don't, you're not stuck in one situation. And also it's providing a safety net for your loved ones. We'll be right back to the show. But with all this talk about investing, I did want to share a special promotion that M1 Finance is running right now, where if you open a new account with them and fund your first $100 into that account, they will give you a free $30, which is a 30% return on investment right there. And again, this show is all about getting started with investing. And so I thought this was perfect timing. I think you guys should definitely take advantage of this promotion while it lasts. There is a link in the description below for you to take advantage of that. Again, you get $30 for free when you open a new account with M1 Finance. And I think M1 Finance is fantastic. I have an account with them as well. It's actually the account that I'm going to be funding the bright future for my son, uh, who's six months right now. So by you opening an account and uh, funding $100, you will get a free $30. And my son will also get $30 that over 18 years will hopefully compound to quite a bit. So Thank you if you do, and I hope that it helps on your journey towards financial independence. And now, back to the show. Absolutely. And it's so inspiring to hear that you have not only been planning and taking care, and you're so confident in your own retirement and your own ability to become financially independent, that you are now willing to extend that help to your parents. And I think we're going to also kind of circle back to this topic where we're talking about generational wealth later, because you, by doing generational or providing generational wealth or building generational wealth, I should say, um, you kind of give a head start to that next generation and it snowballs. So I really am looking forward to getting into that. But before I do want to just get into wealth guilt, I know that's something that you've struggled with in the past. And I thought it was very interesting. So if you can just define what is wealth guilt and what was your story like on that? Yeah. So when I was in my 20s, I got a really good paying job. I was able to have an apartment on my own and I had a lot of free money or I should say a lot of excess money. Um, I kept my expenses relatively low. I didn't really go out and get a brand new car. I didn't do a whole lot of lifestyle inflation as far as quote unquote toys. But what I did do was had a lot of money that I really didn't know what to do with. Um, I did save some. Um, I was contributing to a 401k and I put a little bit of money aside. That was how I was able to, for example, afford a down payment on a home. 
But when you don't know how to build wealth, <laughs> like you have no idea what that means or no one you know uh, has investments or um, anything like that, you just don't really know what to do with it. And so I thought I was being a responsible person. I was contributing to a 401k. I was putting money aside in a savings account. I paid all my bills on time and then I could spend the rest, right? Like it's fun money. This is exactly <laughs> what a responsible person does. Um, and so as I continued in that job, my raises continued increasing and it was really great. But there came a point where I realized that my next bonus or my next raise, I should say, I was going to be crossing into that six figure mark. And it really took me by surprise at how the negative emotions that came out of that, because I had always, I was proud that I was a daughter of an immigrant, that I you know, was born and raised in the Bronx. I came from a low income household and now I'm like making it. But like, there was something about crossing into making six figures that really did something to my psyche. And I felt guilty about that. I felt guilty knowing, for example, that I was making more money than my parents. I felt guilty that I knew so many people who were struggling to keep the lights on and put food on the table. And here I was, this young person, having all the money to buy all of the shoes and the clothes that I wanted. And there was a little bit of, I don't know if maybe survivor's guilt was the right word, but I think it also, there was something going on in the air where there was a lot of talk about the one percenters. Mm -hmm. And I was like, am I part of the one percent? Are people <laughs> going to hate me? I didn't want to feel like I was losing touch with what really was going on. And obviously I had friends and I had family who were in that situation. Um, and also in the type of work that I do, I was always involved in the lower income population and the disenfranchised. So I didn't, it, it was something about making six figures because really the bump, the bump in salary was going from like 94,000 to a hundred, <laughs> but there was something about crossing into a hundred thousand dollars that really made me feel guilty about earning that much money. Mm -hmm. It was the six figure mark that just for some reason had a psychological effect. Yeah, I felt like I didn't deserve it. I felt like I shouldn't have it. And as I reflect on it now, I think in some ways I probably felt guilty about also how I was spending money, right? I didn't have a whole lot to show for it. I didn't, at that point, I was living in a small apartment. I had a little 2005 Kia Spectra, like, so but and I had all these shoes and clothes and it wasn't even like expensive luxury things. So I didn't really have a whole lot to show for it. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was just this overwhelming sense of guilt. Like I didn't deserve it, that, that people were going to find me out perhaps that <laughs> I didn't belong here or something. <laughs> and um, do you think that your background or your upbringing played a factor in that? And, and if so, how do you think that played a factor? Um, what was the talk around money or people who earned 100000 or more um, when you were growing up? Yeah, I, you know, I don't remember anyone saying rich people are bad. But I do remember that there were conversations about people being greedy or people, um, you know, not being compassionate or not being empathetic. 
And I think that was one of the things that I was worried about, whether or not people would start thinking that I was greedy. If I did, for example, want to buy a nicer car or did want to upgrade how I was living. Um, And, you know, conversations about money really were, was about growing up was about why we didn't have enough or not even why we didn't have enough, but the fact that we didn't have enough, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I was talking to a friend of mine um, a couple of years ago and she thought I was rich growing up because I got a quote unquote allowance. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I remember you used to get like $20. And I'm like, and in my mind, there was no weekly allowance. I think there were a few times throughout the year, perhaps, that my dad would give me, you know, like $10 or a $20 bill that I would have to, you know, um, not would have to, but that I was uh, able to spend in any way that I wanted, not realizing that some of my friends didn't even have that. <laughs> um, so there wasn't a whole lot um, talking about money. I mean, we, like I said, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, and in a low income family. And so there wasn't a whole lot of money to be, you know, we had, uh, I was, I'm one of five children. I'm the oldest of one of five kids. So we always each got a pair of sneakers, a pair of shoes at the start of school. And we got some new clothes at the start of school, but we didn't get a whole lot extra. And, you know, for Christmas, we would write out our list about the things we wanted. And, you know, you might get one thing out of that list. So we were, you know, I don't know whether or not you would consider that middle income. I don't, it really wasn't when I know what my parents are making at the time. And actually it was only my dad working at the time because my mom was raising five children. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we did have, we didn't, we had everything we needed, most of everything that we needed. And sometimes we got a few of our wants. And so that was kind of how things went. Um, and there were also some times where we really struggled. Um, and maybe there wasn't a, you know, we always had food to eat, for example, but perhaps it wasn't what we wanted to eat, you know, or maybe it was like the same meal <laughs> four days in a row. Um, but we always had what we needed. And so, um, you know, just thinking back about that, about not necessarily hearing that having money was a bad thing or evil thing, but that people who had money in some ways, there was a negative connotation that they were greedy, for Mm -hmm. example. Yeah, I think it's, it's very important to pay attention to the background that you had and kind of reflect on your experiences. And then hopefully that can help you understand the feelings that you may be feeling today about money. Um, For example, my mom used to always say in Spanish, so I'll translate it, but she always used to say, tienes que ser un buen pobre, which means just be a good poor person. If you you only have one can of beans or whatever left, then do what you can with it. Just be resourceful. So even though I started making good money after pharmacy school, for some reason, those principles still stuck. And I said, I need to be resourceful with whatever I have. And I guess that translated into frugality in a sense. That's why I'm, I was able to make that transition so easily and why minimalism might appeal to me more. But that's kind of when I started realizing that these little phrases or these experiences that you have as a child can have such an impact on you when you grow up and you don't even realize it. Having said that, um, how did you deal with wealth, uh, wealth guilt? What exactly did you do? 
Yeah, I just wanted to touch on something you said. It's so funny because now we hear the terms like house hacking. I'm like, Latinos have been doing that for a long time. We just didn't know what it was called. Or when people, for example, this whole uh, minimalism thing, like reusing jars, I'm like, go into any Latino refrigerator and you're not going to find butter inside of the butter tub. Like you're going to find leftover spaghettis from like the night before. (laughs) So there's, there's definitely, there was definitely those things. And I... Um, This is why I mentioned, you know, I did have a lot of shoes and clothes because it was the first time in my life where I had options of what to wear, right? Instead of just having like the same two pairs of jeans and like three shirts growing up, like now I was able to have different colors and different styles. And so that really was just like, wow, this is so nice to have options um, with my clothing. But I never spent a lot of money on one single item. Like I would never spend $100 on a pair of jeans. So in some ways I was frugal still, but I was still spending a lot. I was spending a lot of money kind of on junk, (laughs) Um, but I was still spending a lot of money. And I think one of the things that I kind of had to deal with as I started to feel guilty was I could make a lot of money. I could be making good money and it doesn't change It doesn't have to change who I am at the core. And also I could do good with money, right? So even if there might be, I mean, there's some bad poor people, right? (laughs) Um, There could be some bad good people, um, some bad rich people too. And I decided I could decide the type of person that I wanted and the amount of money that I had or the amount of income that I made was, could not determine would not define who I am as a person. And so it sounds so simple. It sounds like, well, yes, obviously, but this was just something that was ingrained in me about people who were rich and wealthy. um, They're just greedy and they should just give it to everybody. And I think there is something to be said about generous giving and having a generous heart. Absolutely. I think you should do that regardless of how much you make because you can always give of your time. You can give of your attention. You can give different resources, right? Um, But I think having a generous heart and having a good, being a good person is what's going to define you, define you. And again, it sounds so simple, but it was something that I really had to understand and really absorb and sort of like, I am a good person. And even I could do good with money. I can do better for myself. I can do better for other people. And, you know, this is something that my mom has said. She's like, you know, I don't have to worry about you. And I feel like that is a gift (laughs) that I'm giving my parents as well. You know, that they don't have to worry about you know, whether or not I can afford my rent or whether or not, you know, I have collection agencies calling me. They don't have to worry about that for me. Absolutely. And and yeah, you're right. Generosity and just giving charity wise or, or even volunteering your time. So important. And I hear that so much from the fire community is it's not about money. It's more about fulfillment, happiness, wanting to make a difference in your your life, your partners, your family, or the community or the world. Um, that's why I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. And so touching a little bit more about the generosity aspect, generational wealth is very generous right there because you're saying, I don't want all this money for myself and then use it and then not pass anything along. You want to give something and leave a legacy. 
So talk to me why that's so important. And I believe it's your reason to financial independence. It's your why. Is that right? Yeah, I will say my original why for wanting financial independence was to retire early, right? I was like, I don't want to work till I'm 65. I want to do so much, so many other things with my life um, that working and giving that, that many hours or that amount of hours to a job, even if you love the job, just didn't seem like we were created to work that way. And so my original why was to gain back my time, to give myself the freedom of time to do what I wanted without having to think about money. Now, as I learned more about investing and as I learned about the principles of what financial independence meant, then I began to think about, well, could I help my family, my parents particularly, be financial independent? And once we had that opportunity to leave California, come to New York, and I was like, you know what, the house, that will be my, that's my parents' financial plan, right? This mm-hmm. is how I can help them support themselves as they retire, when they retire. And then, as I mentioned before, you know, I'm pretty confident in our plan right now. You know, the numbers say by 2025, we'll reach our FI number. And I'm not quite ready to leave my job or to leave the workforce what would that look like if I worked for a couple more years? How could that impact the next generation, right? I am one of five kids. I have 10 nieces and nephews. And I know that there were certain things that I wish I had available to me growing up. So for example, I wish I had an SAT tutor, right? I wish I had, um, I didn't have to work 60 hours a week while taking 18 credit hours in college. I wish that I had, you know, I didn't have to worry that if my car broke down, that I was not going to be able to go to school because I went to college in Florida and there was no public transportation. There was not, (laughs) I I couldn't just take a bus or a cab or a train to, to class. Um, So there was just certain, some of those fears that I had that I wondered, well, could I now do this for them? And one of the things that I stopped doing a few years ago is that I stopped giving Christmas and birthday gifts. There's like no more toys. There's no, uh, nothing like that. Um, and I opened up 529s for each of my for each of uh, my nieces and nephews, and that is what I do. I give them money, and you know it's funny because I thought that as they got older, they would say, "Oh well, I, okay, that's nice that you're giving me college money, but I just really want this latest gadget." But no, um, I show them what companies they own, <laughs> um, and I show them how that's grown. Um, And they're excited about that, at least still, at least for now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's fire movement strategies like the Roth IRA, 529. I mean, I know they're part of financial planning, but we use them in different ways as well. That idea was a great one of having 529 plans for your family and introducing that as the new gift giving. I know we've seen or heard of others talk about the Roth IRA and how important that is for generational wealth as well. So how was that received as far as the parents or other adults when you decided to give them stocks instead of the new toys? Yeah, so I think I am lucky because I am one of five siblings. The fact that the kids would get four toys, you know, from each of the other siblings plus 
their grandparents, my mom and dad, they had plenty. And I remember the moment that I decided I would never give a toy again was actually during a Christmas and we were all together and our family celebrate. We open our gifts at midnight, right? Noche buena. We open our gifts at midnight on Christmas Eve. So we have a big dinner Christmas Eve. And then at midnight, we open our gifts. And I remember I was in charge of like being under the tree as I passed all the gifts. And one of my nieces was like, okay, what's next? And I was like, what's next? You just <laughs> opened up three gifts and you're asking for what's next. Like they would just open it up and it was like, okay, cool. Next. And I remember at that moment was when I decided, oh no, I do not want to participate, not in the, not gift giving, right? But it's like, I don't want to participate or encourage, like give me more, 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 right? In this consumerism ideal. So it was then that I decided that I would be doing something different. And so I started with the birthdays. Um, and I think one thing that helps is that I live far from my family right now. So I don't, I'm not always there for like a birthday party. So it's easy for me to say, hey, I just put money into the account and that was it. Now it was gonna be interesting what happened during that next Christmas, but I told the parents what I was doing and they were totally fine with it because they didn't, they did not have college funds for their kids. And, but what that also did was like encourage other adults in the family to start contributing to the 529. So it took one person to open it, one person to start putting money so that other people could follow along. Um, and yeah, that's, that's how it was. There was never anything like, well, you should buy something. Now, what I do do is when I do see my nieces and nephews, I give them experiences. You know, I will take them out to Legoland or to Disney World or things like that, take them out to the zoo. And sometimes even when I visit, I just bring them to my hotel because it's kind of fun to stay in a hotel <laughs> um, and they'll stay with me at the hotel, even if it's one night, because usually I stay at my, my mother or one of my siblings' houses. So I give them those experiences. And the other thing that I do is because I live in New York City, I bring two nieces at a time. I wasn't able to do it this year because of, thank you, COVID. Um, but for the last several years, two nieces at a time, I bring them so that they can spend a few weeks with me. So I'm like, there's other ways to create memories and giving in that type of way. I just don't think that birthdays and Christmas, I need to give a toy. I love that idea and what you did because you are breaking social norms or going against the social norms. And it's okay. It can be difficult though. But like you said, it takes maybe one person to just open that door and then get everybody else on board. And then you can start a nice tradition that, like you said, builds generational wealth, gets them excited about what they own in terms of the companies. So that is really cool. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that one. Yeah, I have I have one story. My one of my nieces, she got $50 for her birthday. And she calls me and she tells me, "Can you put this in my account?" Like, "Oh my gosh." Like I see <laughs> that I were just remembering that I get chills, you know? And it's just like, "Oh goodness." Like she realizes that oh, she had $75 and now all of a sudden it's up to $85. And so if I put it to 50, you know, I put this 50, it can grow into something else. And so just knowing that I feel like now not all of my nieces will <laughs> follow that. But that always, you know, that was encouraging too. And yeah, and that highlights something about generational wealth, that 
not a lot of people talk about or, or get and but you've mentioned is that it's not all about money. So can you go into a little bit about what that means? Generational wealth is not all about money. Yeah. You know, one thing that I mentioned a little earlier was, you know, for example, like I wish I had like an SAT tutor or I wish I knew I had other options when it came to college. You know, I think that there's something that's lost when you don't, when the previous generation hasn't had certain experiences. So if your parents never purchased a home, they can't necessarily help you with their own experience of what they went through when they went to buy a home. If they never applied for college, could they figure it out? Yeah. But they don't have that firsthand experience of what it is to what to look for in a school or how to fill out a college application or even financial aid. So there is a little bit of institutional knowledge that does not get passed down when the previous generation has never experienced that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is more than just money, right? I want to be able to provide, to be able to help my nieces and nephews have a better footing when they go to college so that they don't have the same stresses that I do because I wasn't a straight A student in college. How could I be when I was working 60 hours a week trying not to get into student loan debt? And so I had to sacrifice somewhere. And so if I could alleviate that, yes, I would want to do that. I would love to be able to do that. But perhaps they decide not to go to college or perhaps they decide to go to a trade school. Perhaps they want to go to the entrepreneurial route. Like I would love to be able to say, here, your dreams don't have to end or just stop being just a dream. Like here is some resources not only education, but like, here's like real money (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you might need in order to build this. And I think that even that is a little weird because I know for me, I am guilty of being judgmental when I would say, oh yeah, well, the reason why they started that business was because they got money from mom and dad. It's like, well, if mom and dad worked really hard and are helping their kid, why not? And again, it had to be sort of a mindset reset of saying, I don't want to do quote unquote handouts, right? There has to be some initiative and motivation and drive and a smart plan, for example. But I know the struggle that I had. And if I could help alleviate some of that struggle, why wouldn't I do that? And that is my goal. Again, not only financially, but also I will be helping my nieces and nephews when they are searching for colleges and applications and FAFSA, because I've been through that. My siblings have been through that. So they understand that. But if previous generation hasn't had those experiences, you lose that knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it reminds me of a concept that's a little bit differently applied, but marginal gains where you try to improve just 1% in something Mm -hmm. over time. And we're kind of doing that but in multiple ways. So we're giving the next generation potentially the resources in terms of money or potentially the resources in terms of knowledge or systems in place that they can kind of build on in the, on their own. And they have the one thing that is very, very powerful, as you know, which is time. Time is on their side. And you let these resources like knowledge, money, and systems grow over 40 to 50 years. It's amazing what can be accomplished. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I know you went to, to pharmacy school. I'm like, did you have mentors or anybody in your family who had done that path? And sort of like, what was that for you? For me, nobody went to pharmacy school before me. There were no doctors in my family that I know of. But my mom was an excellent role model for me. And I saw the struggle that she went through as a single mother trying to raise me. So I think that a lot of that stuck. And there came a certain point that I realized that I have so much that I came from a privileged place in in all reality, even though we weren't rich or anything like that. I do feel like being born in America and having anything that I really wanted to do available to me was something that I wanted to take advantage of. And that's for me, that's when it clicked. And I said, if my mom can struggle as much as she has, I think I can do pharmacy school. And this is what I wanted to do anyways. So there were no excuses for me at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make an impact on my family, my family's legacy, as you mentioned. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about how generational wealth impacts things like the wealth gap in America? Oh, yeah. When we talk about, you know, when we think about um, homeownership, for example, you know, this is probably something that... um, it doesn't happen as often here in New York City. So I'm going to talk about other places other than like the high cost of living apartment, mainly living. When we think about um, home ownership, home ownership is one of the primary drivers to wealth in America. And if you have never owned a home or your family has never owned a home, It just already puts you at a disadvantage. Now, I am not talking about deciding whether or not to rent and buy, right? Because that's a whole other conversation. I don't think you need to own a home in order to build wealth. There are definitely other avenues, but it is the number one way people build wealth. And so when we think about particularly not only the the, um, wage gap, for example, you know, I think it's either today or tomorrow, you know, is uh, Latina Equal Pay Day. And it's like October 28th of 2020 is when um, Latinas reach what somebody on January 1st would make, right? It takes, it's 53 cents on the dollar. Wow. And it's just kind of insane to think about that. And so when we think about, okay, let's try to level the playing field for example, with home ownership, yet home ownership isn't accessible to people or as accessible. It's much harder when you don't make a good income, when you're lower income family, it's already a disadvantage. Right. And and that's what I wanted to kind of just ask you about, because I feel the same way. I think generational wealth is part of the reason why we have this wealth gap in America, because certain groups of people have either been excluded or they've been paid unequally, whether it be by race or by gender. And that all, again, going back to the marginal gains over time, house ownership, leaving a a legacy, things like that, they add up over generations. And that is what really just, I think that's what makes the wealth gap just continue to grow and expand at a higher rate. So I love the idea of providing generational wealth to our families and leaving a legacy because you can be that person that starts that. And that's how, how much more fulfilling can that be that you are remembered in your family as the person who started the legacy for your family? Yeah. And, and I think it's also important, uh, you know, again, it's not just about money. It's also 
I didn't know anybody who was rich or wealthy, at least not, not that I knew of growing up, right? I didn't know anyone who was investing in the stock market, for example. And if we begin to normalize that to the people around us, they can say, well, I know exactly what to do because uh, Mrs. Miller showed me how to do that. Or, you know, it, just the interest, just the option, because I didn't know. For me, I thought investing in the stock market was something that wealthy people did, right? If you weren't wealthy, you didn't invest in the stock market. Like, that was it. And I wasn't wealthy. I didn't have a lot of money. And so I didn't need to learn about it because it wasn't for me. Um, but if you begin to normalize some of those things, um, I think the younger generation, other people, not only even your family, just friends and associates will begin to ask questions, for example, as we begin having those open discussions. And of course, talking about money is a little bit taboo, but I think we need to begin having those conversations. I negotiated my salary and I was, a, I was young and naive. I didn't know. <laughs> But someone had told me what they were making at the job and they had given me the heads up about applying for this job and he told me what he was making. So when they came back and offered me something and it was way less, I knew that I could ask for more. Mm -hmm. But had he not been open about what he was making, I wouldn't have known to ask for more. And he made that normal for me. And so I think, you know, having those conversations and normalizing conversations about money. And I think little by little it's happening before no one used to talk about how much debt they had. And now we're like cheering and celebrating with people as they pay off their student loans and become debt free. And this is what, this is the way it should be, right? Absolutely. That's why I love the debt-free community on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I am all for cheering everybody on to uh, meet their financial goals. And you're right, having those resources like your blog, hopefully like this show, will help them get ahead. So I'm going to be including that in the show notes, your blog, and some of your well-known articles as well, so that people can kind of read into a little bit more about the wealth guilt that you experienced or creating generational wealth. Is there anything else that you want to share? Anything exciting coming up that you want to talk about or where maybe more people can find you? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. This has been a blast. Um, everything is will be in the show notes, but I'm most active on Mrs. Miller on Fire on Instagram. Um, I recently have started thinking about the idea of doing some financial coaching because what happens is that I will recommend books, blogs, podcasts, like we know all of those things and they worked for me in order to get the knowledge, but I think people are still intimidated to walk that journey alone. And so that is something that I've kind of been toying with too, um, because sometimes, and that's okay, like it is okay to not feel 100% confident or secure just yet. Um, you will get there and it is okay to ask for help. So, you know, just like Chris mentioned, like there's really great podcasts out there, including this one and great blogs. Uh, but so, don't, don't feel discouraged if you haven't taken that step. You know, I would love for you to take that first step, but people go at their own pace, uh, paced, <laughs> at their own pace. Uh, so it's okay if you're, um, you know, you've been listening for a while, just try to make one move, one step at a time. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic advice. 
Thank you so much for, for joining the show once again. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mrs. Miller. I wish you the best of luck with your financial goals in the future. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you for having me. 